Why don't you take a moment to say hi to someone uh, around you? <laughs> Give somebody a hug. Well, good morning, good morning. Um, just a, a couple of notes before we get started. Uh, just even as we were talking about the Thanksgiving meal tonight and the, uh, <clears throat> the Christmas Eve service, uh, I just want to encourage you all, uh, you know, when we get around the holiday seasons, uh, people tend to, or people who don't necessarily attend church or go to church, uh, it's, it's around the holiday season that people are more open to uh, coming in through those doors or doors at other churches. And so I just want to encourage you and myself uh, that we would, uh, you know, have a heart's desire to really reach people this holiday season. Um, that God has a, a, lot of, a lot of work to do in people's lives. And, and when people are, are a little bit more receptive, a little bit more open into coming to church or even hearing the gospel message or even hearing how God has done something in your life, uh, that we would be prayerfully considering as God's people how we might be looking for opportunities to either invite people into Christian community uh, or open a conversation that might not, not otherwise have been opened uh, previously during the year. And, uh, and, and along with that, I think um, as we approach this holiday season, that we would just be praying day in and day out that God would be providing opportunities for us. Opportunities to, uh, to engage in conversation with people who don't know the Lord or maybe who have been put off by church or who, are, who seem like they're, they're far away and you think to yourself, wow, man, that person, if that person got saved, man, like God would just do just amazing things through them. Um, and so that, that this, this holiday season, this Christmas season, that we would uh, just be cultivating an attitude and a heart that would say, hey, God, how do you, you want to use me uniquely this holiday season to potentially reach some people uh, who you want to bring into your family? Um, and as we think about that, uh, just, just a, a subtle notation, uh, this Christmas, uh, <clears throat> we're going to be doing a, a Christmas series, a, a sermon series uh, titled Real Christmas, uh, Disseminating the Reality Behind the Holiday Season. Now, uh, from, from next Sunday all the way up into uh, Christ, the Christmas Eve service, we're going to be t- we're covering different aspects of uh, the, the truth behind Christmas. Uh, as we think about Christmas, uh, you know, it is historically a Christian holiday, but here in the United States, it's a highly secularized call, uh, holiday as well. Uh, you know, people are about Christmas lights or just being about family gatherings, and, and it's a season to generously give uh, to those who are closest to us or, or those who are in need. And, and while those things might be good things uh, in and of themselves, um, the Christmas se- season has much deeper roots and significant implications for us today that are becoming more and more hidden uh, in the population at, at large around us. And so this Christmas, we want to unearth those truths that are becoming more and more hidden so that the true meaning of Christmas might become more known and more clear in our minds and the minds of those around us. And we might discover how those truths, those realities might impact our lives and the lives of those people around us even more. Um, and so we really want to get at the heart of what Christmas is about. Um, 
And so that's where we're going this, this Christmas season uh, in our next Christmas series. Real Christmas. What is, what is Christmas really about? Um, now, uh, this week, uh, as I transition, uh, this week was a, a good week for uh, me and my family, specifically me and my wife. Um, we got to go out on a date, which was awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, for those of you who, who had, have had kids or currently have kids, uh, you know how uh, overwhelming at times that it can be, you know, and, and, and week in and week out, it just seems like so often, I mean, my wife and I have this conversation, it just feels like we're surviving right now. You know, we've got a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old, and they require our energy, our, our, our uh, I know, our time, uh, our affections, uh, our mind, our attention, uh, they're all consuming, you know, and uh, my wife and I constantly are talking about, I just want to have an adult conversation without an interruption, you know, and, uh, you know, my wife and I, we are best friends, uh, and, and it's like, we go on at a date, it's like, oh, there you are, Peter, you know, like, there you are, my, my friend, my companion, um, and it's just so refreshing, so enriching, just to be able to have that relational connection, um, and when I think about that, you know, that's what, that's really is what the heart of relationships, connecting on a deep relational level. Um, and whether it's in the context of a marriage or an intimate relationship, or even within friendships, uh, you know, my, when I think about my friendships, uh, my wife and I, we, we're very much about connecting on a much deeper level in our friendships, going beyond just that surface conversation. And at the heart of that, you know, I really see how we're designed as human beings to be in, in meaningful relationships with one another. Now, when I think about my own story and my own past, this has actually been something, going to a deeper level has actually been something that has been a struggle for me, being a military child. See, uh, every two to three years growing up, I had to move. And so, growing up, I learned to get to a certain stage in my relationship with friends, and then we had to start all over again. And so, uh, it, it, it almost relationally and emotionally stunted me in my relationships, um, where I learned to get to a certain point in my relationships, but then after that, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to go further. And uh, I think as, as I think about my, my own faith story and my relationship with God, I think that that had uh, a role to play in my relationship with God and understanding who God was. It taught me to only get so far. And when it came to Him, uh, I, I tended to keep God at arm's distance. Uh, my experience seeing faith growing up, um, you know, I, a lot of times I was forced to go to, to Sunday with my mom. My mom was a believer. My dad wasn't a believer for a long time. Um, and a lot of times it was just about, you know, hey, kids, we're going to church, you know. And so... Uh, what I learned early on in life, you know, so much of, of church and faith was about, you know, being a good Christian meant going to, to church every single Sunday. Or being a good Christian meant it's about knowing all the things of the Bible. Or being a good Christian meant doing all the right things, you know, serving a lot and doing, doing more and more of those service projects. And while I saw many people doing these things, oftentimes I failed to see Jesus. Um, it felt that so many people around me were playing this religious game, and it lacked something deeper. It, it lacked something genuine, something that was heartfelt, you know, something that was real, that was tangible. And it wasn't until years later in my life when it came to a moment where I almost lost my life uh, and I was, almost died uh, that I finally surrendered my heart to Jesus and saw things from a new perspective. And I, just, I discovered for the first time that God's desire for me was to be in a personal, intimate relationship with Him. To know Him deeply. And to understand Him. To walk with Him. 
And, and as we look at John 13 this morning, today we're going we're gonna to learn that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must move be, beyond the religious practices into a genuine, heartfelt relationship with the li- living God. Uh, so as we, as we go uh, to John 13 this morning, we're going to be talking a lot about discipleship. Um, and discipleship uh, is, is really at the heart of it, is, is living out the good news of Jesus Christ. That God has provided both the means and the pathway through Jesus to bring humanity, to bring us as humans back to right relationships with him and with other fellow human beings. And because of this, as we as God's people were called to, to live within and cultivate around us relational environments, both with God and with our brothers and sisters, and that we're called to live out these relationships and relational environments where the kingdom living happens, where it is realized in our everyday lives. So we're going to look at John 13, 31 through 35 this morning. And we want to answer two questions, two primary questions regarding discipleship. First of all, why do we need relationship? Secondly, why does a relational environment involve within Jesus... What, sorry, what does a relational environment involve within Jesus' model of discipleship? So the first question is, is, why do we need relationship within discipleship? And what does a relational environment involve within Jesus' model of discipleship? But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And God, as we come before your word, Lord, God, we trust that you have given us your Holy Spirit, God, to understand and to learn from you, Lord. And God, I pray this morning as we open your word, God, that you would reveal your heart, that you would reveal your mind, and that we might align with who you are this morning, Lord. God, soften our hearts, Lord, as we come in here from our week, from from maybe a a a tough week at work or tough life circumstances, God. Uh, Or maybe, God, we're just frustrated, we're on empty, Lord, that we would just be open and receptive to hearing what you would have to speak to us this morning. So God, as we come before you, teach us, Lord. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at John 13, 31 through 35. So would you turn your Bibles there with me? Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And my sermon this morning is titled Moving Beyond Religion. We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit this morning. And, and just, just so we have a firm grasp and understanding where John's coming from, let's, let's talk a little bit about context. Now, the Gospel of John, we know that the author is John, the son of Zebedee. <clears throat> and he was one of the first disciples <clears throat> called, along with James and P- Peter, who formed this inner circle that were closest to Jesus. In the Gospel, he refers to himself as the, the beloved disciple. John knew about the love of Jesus and felt personally and intimately his relationship with his Savior as knowing one who was loved by Jesus. Now, the central theme of the, of the Gospel of John is the physical appearance of the Son of God within human history. See, John explores two facets in regarding to the, the appearance of the Son of God in human history. The two facets are his, both his revelation and his redemption. First of all, in Revelation, that Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God, 
his truth, his purpose, and his mission in this world. And that it comes primarily through Jesus. Secondly, in in regards to redemption, that Jesus Christ not only is the revealer, but he also reveals the fullness of God's glory. He redeems and restores humanity through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so therefore, John's purpose is to explain God's revelation and redemption through Jesus and demonstrate the implication those things have in our lives. And so a key verse for the Gospel of John is John 20, verse 31, where he writes this, But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. The literary structure of the Gospel of John is broken up into two primary components within the Gospel as a whole. The first half of of John is in chapters 1 through 12, where he talks about the book of, it's a book of signs. And then the second half, it's a book of glory. Now the first 12 chapters uh, tend to focus on Jesus' earthly ministry. And then the second half of the book, we see that it shifts from a private, or sorry, from a public setting to a more private setting, primarily aimed at his followers during the Passover time. All nine chapters in the second half of the Gospel of John center just on a few days of Jesus' life. And what that tells us is that John is trying to emphasize something there by taking so much time and diligence to cover just those few days. Specifically, chapters 13 through 17 focus on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, as we look at chapter 12 coming into chapter 13, Jesus has, a, has been anointed uh, for his death and enters Jerusalem knowing he's going to be going to the cross. Now, chapter 13 opens uh, with Jesus and his disciples sharing a Passover meal together followed by his washing the disciples' feet and modeling what it looks like to take the place of a disciple. And then he goes on to predict his betrayal. Now, as we come to our, our passage, this is part of Jesus' famous farewell discourse. So John 13, 31 through 35, we see that Jesus is the author, or not the author, but the speaker, and the audience here are the 11 disciples. Now that Judas has, has gone and he's left uh, to deceive Uh, to deceive the disciples and to um, betray Jesus himself. Um, And so in Jesus' departure, it begins this course of events in this passage. His betrayal was part of Jesus' glorification, what led to his ultimately his death and his resurrection. And we see here, starting in verse 31, it says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, this idea of glory simply means to magnify, praise, or honor. Specifically, this glory is attributed to Jesus himself. And why this is interesting is that the New, Ta- the New Testament takes a decisive step from the Old Testament by using a word, glory, in relationship to Jesus that was never used in, relation- in, in the Old Testament for any human being except for God himself. Now, the synoptic gospels limit this usage, so synoptics meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they limit this usage to Jesus' birth, his transfiguration, and his resurrection. But what's unique about the gospel of John is that John uses, uses this word, his glory, to describe Jesus throughout his gospel. And much, much of his focus is, is on his earthly ministry. And so and John has a tendency to describe Jesus uh, from this standpoint of exaltation. The turning point 
The entry into glory ultimately is the cross. The dying of the corn of wheat that's, that's pictured in the uh, Gospel of John is that corn of wheat dies, it produces fruit. And so John draws this particularly strong connection between this dying and bringing forth fruit, between the death and resurrection of Jesus, between suffering and glorification that comes through the cross. And you might be asking yourself, okay, well, why is this important to me? As we covered before, God's glory is revealed through redemption. It is his glory which fulfills the very purposes of God. Well, what is that purpose? John tells us as he begins his book in John chapter 1. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. And so John, from the very beginning, proclaims God's purpose in the glorification of his son. See, Jesus' purpose is to bring human beings back into God's family, to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation. And not only reconciliation and restoration vertically with God and humanity, but also horizontally with humanity within itself. Now, on a broader scale, we see that, that this isn't necessarily a unique message. When we, when we look at Scripture from cover to cover, We see that God's entire message, God's entire plan throughout salvation history is about restored relationship. When we look back to the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, God blesses Abraham and you know what he says? He says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all nations. When God gives the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are primarily concerned with relationship, living in right relationship with God and living in right relationship with fellow man. They're guidelines on how we ought to conduct ourselves in in the context of our relationship with God and and others. When we look at the, the prophets, the prophets are constantly calling God's people back to him to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation, to bring about repentance so that the God's people might have life. And when we look at Jesus in in context of his ministry, when he was asked what the most important commandment was, we are told that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. See, from the very beginning, it was all about restored relationship, about reconciled relationship with God and within humanity. Now, the problem was that in the Old Testament, while this created a religious structure and a pathway to live, It was never the final answer to deal with the problem of sin. It still kept humanity at a distance from God and from his fellow man. It provided the religious structure, but not the actual effective heart change that was necessary to have true, meaningful relationship with God and with your fellow man. So when we read the story, the glory of God through Jesus, we read that sentence, the glory of God through Jesus Christ, we read that it is the life, the death, and the resurrection of God's anointed one. And it moves beyond the external religious practices or the systems that were in place. And what it does is it moves us, who put our faith and our trust in Jesus, from outside of the family to in. It moves us from death to life. It moves us from enemies of God to friendship with God. From religion to relationship 
with the eternal one. And in regards to relationship with our fellow man, it moves us from isolation from one another to intimacy. It moves us from things like fear and pride to affirmation of self-worth and selflessness as opposed to pride. It moves us from having hostility towards one another to actually having peace with one another. In short, the answer to our first question this morning is that we need relationship because it is the revealed purpose of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring us back into right relationship with our Creator and with our fellow man. It's all about reconciliation. And we need relationship ultimately because as we align ourselves with Jesus and are brought back into that right relationship with God, we are redeemed and participate in the very glory we were designed to give him from the garden. That's why, that's why relationship is important. Now, as we look at verses 34 and 35, we're going to see the answer to our second question. What does a relational environment with it involve within Jesus' model of discipleship? What does a relational environment involve within Jesus' model of discipleship? Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The first thing we see here is that it involves a new teaching. It involves a new teaching. He says, a new commandment I give to you. In this statement, we first see that it is a commandment. See, the commandments of the Old Testament were always held as authoritative because they were from God. It was God who held the authority, not human beings. And therefore, he took the rightful place as the lawgiver. So when Jesus gives a commandment, he puts himself in the seat of God and aligns himself with God's authority. Equally important is that the commandments were given so that God's people might have life. See, in the the Old Testament, when we look at all the commandments and the laws, uh, those things weren't given to make uh, the Israelites' life horrible. You realize that, right? All these laws and these structures, God's not like this eternal killjoy that's sitting on his throne and saying, let me think how I can actually just make their life so hard and, and horrible that they, they have all these prescriptions and these requirements, man, they're going to they're gonna feel my wrath. That wasn't God's purpose in that. You realize that, right? His purpose was that they might have life, that they might know who God is, that they might know who, what his heart is like. See, when we look at the, the laws of the Old Testament, in every fabric, in every little word, we see something about the character and the nature of God himself. And there's something beautiful in that. And the reason why I think so, it's so hard for us, or we might see it as a killjoy, is because of the brokenness of sin that exists in our hearts and that we are in conflict. It's like oil and water, Right? But it was meant to be life. It was meant to be spiritual food. It was meant to be nourishing. And likewise, Jesus' commandments are meant to be the same spiritual food that sustains life in the same way that the laws of the Old Testament did. It lights our path. It keeps us from, from sin. And it nourishes our souls. And as disciples, we must sit under Christ's lordship in our lives and allow his word, his way, his way of living to sustain us in this world. We also see that the commandment is new. The commandment is new in the sense that that as a disciple, we need to replace our previously held perspectives, our previously held worldview, and replace it with Jesus' perspective and with Jesus' worldview, seeing the world through his lens. 
But it is also new in the sense that it is founded on the very love of Christ. We are obedient to Christ's commandment, not merely out of a sense of duty or moralism. Nor are we obedient because we feel we must do so in order to win God's approval in our life. The commandment, when we think about God's commandments, they're not meant to be burdensome. See, this new commandment, as we respond to this new commandment, simply because we are recipients of the great love that God has for us through his son Jesus, we respond back to him in love. The commandments aren't supposed to be a a hard yoke. They're supposed to be a light yoke. Because as we are receiving God's love on a daily basis, and as we are on our knees recognizing, man, God has poured out his, his grace and his kindness towards us, It is our heart's desire to respond to God in obedience out of a heart filled with love and joy. That's why Scripture tells us we love because He first loved us. It is supposed to be in mutual love for God that we respond to being obedient to His commandments in the same way that He has shown His great love to us. We also see that it is given to all disciples. See, Jesus gives the commandment within the context of Christian community. As we said before, it was 11 disciples with Jesus as they were celebrating, just finishing up, celebrating the Passover meal. And what this tells us is that we are not, we are not only held accountable individually, but also corporately. The commandment is meant to be lived out within the context of Christian community in the same way that the Old Testament commandments were meant to be lived out within the Jewish community. They're meant to be expressed not just in an individualized way, which flies in the face of our contemporary culture, but within the context of intimate, real community happening in the context of the church. Discipleship is communal and therefore relational by its very nature. So what is the, what is the, second, what is the second thing that it involves? Well, I would say the second thing it involves is real living. Jesus says in this passage that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We are commanded to love one another in the same way that Jesus loved us. When we look at that love, we see in the Greek it's it's the agape love, which we've probably heard before. It's this idea of unconditional love without favoritism, without prejudice. Specifically in a Johannian sense, it is a love that is a heavenly reality which descends in the person and life of Jesus Christ in this world and is extended to us as his followers. The love of God is the final reality of the life of fellowship between God and us. And abiding in his love is the law of, its, of, of life, ultimately. Uh, one of my favorite <clears throat> authors uh, is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and he wrote this book called Life Together. And, and in response to this commandment, he says this, What this means is that we can only have true community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. And an important aspect is is how Jesus loved. We throw that idea of love around. But how Jesus loved was something that was very unique. See, Jesus was transparent. He didn't pretend to be something that he wasn't. He was not a hypocrite. He allowed the disciples to see all of him. And you might think to yourself, yeah, but he was perfect. He had it all together, so he didn't have any skeletons in his closet. So that was pretty easy for him, right? Well, 
Jesus was as real as he, as he could be. He was not ashamed to show how he felt. We read in the New Testament that he wept openly. He got angry. He shared emotional pain and told his disciples about it. He felt discouraged and challenged at times. He was tempted in every way that we are. And he demonstrated fear as he, as he prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. The way in which we love one another must model and, the, and reflect the very way Jesus demonstrated and, and, and modeled for us. We too must be willing to be transparent with each other. We must not pretend to be something that, that we're not. We must be willing to let people see us, to see our hearts, to see our battles, to see our weaknesses, to see our flaws. Why? Because Jesus, even though he didn't have flaws, he let people into his very life in every aspect. Those disciples got to see it first, and he modeled something for us. As the church, we must be willing to serve and care for one another in, in the midst of those shortcomings, in the midst of that brokenness. Just as Christ cared for his disciples in the midst of their weaknesses. Man, when you look at the disciples, they're a bunch of ragamuffins. You realize that, right? They're just broken human beings. You know, like I talked about last week, you know, you know Peter's like ill-tempered, you know? Uh, he's quick to jump at things. He makes mistakes. And Jesus loves them in the midst of that. Um, the rest of the disciples, they're constantly not getting it. They're concerned about yeast and bread. Oh, you know, Jesus must think that we haven't prepared enough food. They're constantly missing it, right? But Jesus loved them in the midst of that. He saw all the flaws. He saw all their shortcomings. And he loved them in the midst of all of those things. One commentator, one commentator puts it this way. <clears throat> it is not so much that Christians are to love the world less as that they are to love one another more. Their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as children of God. Let me read that one more time. Their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as children of God. The final point that I want to make is that relational community involves real accountability. Verse 35, we read, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now the principle here is that we, as disciples of Jesus, are accountable to how we love and care for one another by those around us, right? All men, all men includes everyone, those outside and inside the context of the Christian community. And there's an element of accountability there. <clears throat> we are held accountable by those within the community to faithfully pursue the life Jesus Christ has called us to as followers and live in obedience to him. Now, ultimately, what this means is that because we love each other, we must not only be transparent with each other, but we must love each other in a way that nurtures us to move towards holiness and faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. We are transparent about our struggles. We hold, <clears throat> we hold one another accountable to live out the change that Jesus truly wants to bring in our heart and make our lives look differently. Biblically, we, we read this as a process of sanctification, God bringing about holiness in our lives. We lovingly address the behaviors and attitudes that do not glorify God in our lives. We hold one another accountable so that all men might know us by our love. 
Not as, as a sake of condemnation, but as a sake of, hey, I want to lo- walk alongside of you, brother. I want to walk alongside of you, sister, to encourage you in your faith so that you may grow more and more, not only in the wisdom and knowledge of God, but the life of God. We're not simply honest for honesty's sake, but lovingly do this and challenge one another to pursue Christ in this world. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. For him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Do you hear Paul in that? In love, we're encouraging each other to pursue the very life that Jesus has called us to, in relationship with him and one another. So it involves real accountability. Now, as we think about what this means for us today, do we want more than just religion, right? It's easy for us to play this church game, isn't it? Or the religious game. We're good at it. We're good at masking our hearts and where our hearts are truly at. See, God's purpose in Jesus Christ is to redeem and restore humanity to right relationship with himself and with his fellow man. And oftentimes, we, again, we keep God at arm's length. We are happy with our religion. We are satisfied with going through the motions, checking the things off, the, the God section, the God compartmentalize of our life. Went to church on Sunday, check. Got that done. And maybe we've uh, equated going to church and adhering to this Christian title with what it means to be a a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've equated your faith to living by a set of moral principles that happen to align with the Christian faith, but you never recognize your need for a Savior and surrender to Him in your life. And if you're here this morning and you want more than just religion, I would say come and get it. Jesus wants it. He wants you. He, he, He moved heaven and hell for you and for I. Come and get him. Don't go through the practices anymore. Don't go through the motions anymore. Go for Jesus. Surrender your heart to him, your life to him, your will to him, your mind to him, all of yourself. And some of you might think, well, man, I don't know if I can do that. That's really hard. And I would just encourage you, it's worth it. If you want to experience life everlasting, if you want to experience true peace, true reconciliation, that that void that's inside of you that only God can fill. If you want to experience peace with relationships with other people in your life, if if you want those things and if you truly want to know what life looks like, come and get it. He's ready. He's waiting. And if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, Uh, I think those things that we learned in this passage about uh, a new teaching, right? Real living and real accountability, those have something to teach us, right? Have you been keeping God at arm's distance? You call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you say, okay, God, uh, just hold it right there. I'm good with with who I am right here and and good with who you are right there. But I don't really want you to to come in and, and change my life because I'm afraid of what that might look like. Don't keep him at arm's distance any longer. Are you lacking authentic and meaningful intimacy with your Savior? See, like all relationships, it requires that we invest, right? 
I don't know about some of you, but I've got those friendships that are on the, the, the surface and are peripheral. But those relationships that mean something to me, I sacrifice my time. I sacrifice my agenda. I sacrifice my plans, right? Those relationships that mean something to us, we move other things around to make them a priority, don't we? And it's the same way with Jesus. If you want an authentic, real, meaningful relationship with your Savior, it means that he's going to have to be a priority in your life. It means that you're going to have to spend time in prayer. It means that you're going to have to spend time in fellowship. It means that you're going to have to make him a priority. What What are the ways in your life that little by little, he's become less and less of a priority to you? Where is your prayer life at? How much time, not even time, are you, are you spending any time in the word of God? Not for the sake of more knowledge, but for the sake of knowing God's heart and his mind. Are you following Christ's example to live out your faith with transparency by allowing people into your life to see who you really are? Now that's a hard one, right? Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but you know when I think about when I used to, my wife and I were dating, um, you know, you're always trying to put your best foot forward, right? You don't want to show people your bad stuff because you don't want to push them away, right? That's what we do. Ever since the garden, we protect and preserve, right? They hid. We like to hide, don't we? We've been doing it from the garden. We as human beings, and I think the church as a whole in the past has, has presented this, this picture that in order to come be part of the body of God, you've got to have everything together. You gotta have all your ducks in a row. You gotta have everything figured out. The reality is, is the church is a bunch of broken people who realize that we don't have it figured out, but we know the one who does. God is not afraid of your sin, and we are not afraid of your sin and brokenness. Come have a conversation with me. I'll tell you stories about my broken past, my checkered life, and my sin struggles each and every day. And it's not for the sake of championing our sin. It's a sake for, for demonstrating or, or, or clarifying how God is, is redeeming us day in and day out. We cannot truly know others or be known by others unless we're letting people into who we actually are. All of it, the good stuff and the bad. And that is not only individually, but that is us corporately as a church. So we live in a modern day and a modern society, and I'm going to get on my soapbox here. We live in a modern day in a modern society that sees the gospel message as one that is no longer credible or a positive message. Now, when it comes to the credibility of the message of the Christian faith, there are people, many people out there who, who question the church because of a lack of authenticity, a lack of seeing the church, a, a lot, the people of the church being transparent, I feel like, hey, they, they act like they've got it all together, but I've seen too many hypocrites coming out of the church. Brothers and sisters, we need to change that tide. We need to let people know that it is safe here. Not just this building, in this community. And we must create space and allow ourselves to be broken and vulnerable with one another to be able to proclaim and share with others how God has taken our brokenness and brought healing and reconciliation in our lives. To be able to share with others how God has brought true, meaningful life. And that God isn't just a God of a religion, but we serve the living, active God who makes a difference in our lives. 
And that's the type of community I believe God wants us to be. And I think that's the type of community that we genuinely want. But we're afraid to let people in. So my challenge and my charge to us today as we close is that we would be that type of community. That we wouldn't be afraid to let people in, not only who are here, but new people coming in as well. That we would allow ourselves to be vulnerable. That we would allow ourselves to be, to be accurate with who we are. But at the same time, accurate about who God is in our lives. And let people see the real Jesus. Because I tell you what, people are hungry for it. They just need to see it. So let people see it. Individually and corporately here. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you've called us your disciples. That you've called us into relationship with yourself, Lord. God, I pray us that... I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to follow you. God, that you give us the courage to lay down our selfishness, our pride, our agenda, our comfortability, our American way of life, to say, God, it may cost me something, but you moved everything to be with me. And what you offer me, God, cost you everything. And what I think it might cost me is nothing in comparison to what I get in you. God, allow us to be a real community here, Lord, that allows your transforming work in our lives to take root and effect. And God, that you would move us by your love, that we would live in true relationship with you. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your work, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.